Welcome to the 373rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author Matthew B. Crawford, author of the book Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. And just one programming note. This interview was originally recorded last summer during the middle of the pandemic, so some of the references to the pandemic uh, might sound dated today of March 2021. So I just wanted to let you know that. Again, stay tuned for my interview with Matthew B. Crawford, author of Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Check out Libro.fm today. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Matthew Crawford. Ten years ago, Crawford's best-selling book, Shop Class as Soul Craft, was published. Crawford is now back with his new book, Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new book, Why We Drive Yet, how would you describe the premise or argument of your new book? Oh, it's it's kind of taking <clears throat> driving as a window onto uh, a lot of different stuff. Um, the, the more I thought about driving, the more it, it seemed like a really rich way to think about um mobility in general, being embodied creatures who move through the world and often use some kind of technology to amplify our natural kind of um, embodied capacities. Um, And also uh, for thinking about, well, the, the push for driverless cars seemed like one instance of this wider pattern in which the demands of skill and competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. And it seemed worth thinking about um, the kind of atrophy of various forms of human intelligence that that is likely to bring, uh, just like a muscle that, that isn't being used. So what are your earliest memories after you got your driver's license? What did that feel like to get behind the wheel Mm. and drive by yourself or with friends? 
Well, I guess my first memory of driving was when my mom let me drive her car with her in it. Um, so it was a 1978 Honda Accord with a stick shift. And I remember getting behind the wheel and just immediately feeling uh, natural um, that it just, it, it made so much sense to me. And she was sort of astonished that, uh, you know, working the clutch and everything seemed to come so easily. So I guess I had been in my mind rehearsing uh, driving. Uh, my first car was a 1963 VW Beetle. And I got it before I had a license. I was actually working at a Porsche shop already. And what I remember about driving that car is that I quickly discovered the pleasure of driving sideways, that is, sliding around corners, <laughs> which is something that you can make those cars do very easily. You know, you could be going 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, and the, the rear end breaks loose. And that was just a whole lot of fun. So... In the United States right now, we're currently grappling with this global pandemic. I'm curious, personally, have you been out driving to kind of deal with the isolation and quarantine? Yeah, I had one beautiful ride on a motorcycle down Route 1 uh, through Big Sur in California. And that's a road that's normally just choked with tourists. But back in the earlier stages of the pandemic, pandemic anyway um, the roads are really very empty so it was a great time to to drive some of those iconic roads and yeah in your car you're you are socially isolated right um very true i i sometimes find myself going out and just sitting in the car in the driveway just to get away from my family you know because we're just on top of each other for months and months so I think maybe people are kind of taking an extra bit of pleasure in that those moments of private headspace that you get in your car. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm sure you're right. Well, as you mentioned, we're living in this era of electric cars and a steady pursuit of driverless car technology. Um, I can assume from what you said earlier that you're not going to be lining up to buy a driverless car. I mean, I can see the appeal if if you had a commute that was just bumper to bumper traffic on a freeway. Um, you know, I, I can definitely see the appeal, but I I see the the push for driverless cars as as kind of revealing of of a lot of um, larger trends. And to begin with, it is a sort of top down push. It really isn't a, a response to consumer demand. <clears throat> So there was one incident where a Google self-driving car came up on an intersection and uh, it was a four-way stop. And so it came to a complete stop and waited for the other cars to do the same before proceeding. But of course, that's not what people do. They tend to sort of roll through. And so the Google car just got paralyzed. It didn't know what to do because people weren't following the rules and the, uh, the Google guy in charge said that what he had learned from this incident is that human beings need to be less idiotic, is what he said. And of course, by, by that he meant they need to behave more like robots. They need to be strict rule followers. But completely invisible to him was the kind of social intelligence on display 
at that intersection. You know, people make eye contact. Maybe one person waves the other through because there's always ambiguous cases of right of way. And for the most part, this works just fine. But that kind of social intelligence is very hard to reproduce with machine logic. So the conclusion then is, you know, just people need to get out of the way to make room for the uh, for the machines. And so there's a there's a kind of odd anti-humanism to it, I think, that is a failure to appreciate the intelligence on display in, in everyday activities. So when you were writing your book, did you research or contemplate how integral driving and the automobile is to American pop culture and media? From so many Bruce Springsteen songs to thousands and thousands of country songs that mention trucks and driving back roads, or from Easy Rider to the latest Fast and Furious movie, cars are integral to pop culture, music, and movies. What is it about that experience of driving and automobiles that is so resonant? Well, I don't know. I guess, I mean, there's there's always been this American uh, idea of lighting out for the territories, even before we had cars, the idea that there's a, there's a frontier or at least there's some kind of empty space out there that serves as a, as a release. And the car is an, an interesting thing. It's you're enclosed in your own private property in the car. And I think it encourages a kind of solipsism, um, where you know, other people just appear as obstacles and the feeling is to get out of my way, you know, that, that sort of road rage mentality. And yet at the same time, the road is this shared space where we need to cooperate. Um, as in, you know, if you look at a, an intersection in Rome, for example, where it looks like chaos, but in fact, it's a, it's almost this, uh, a sort of ballet of, of mutual prediction and cooperation. So I guess my point here is that driving at once kind of exemplifies that hyper-individualism um, of American society. And at the same time, uh, if you take a closer look, I think it also exemplifies the kind of cooperation and social solidarity that we also uh, value and sort of lament the uh, decline of. Well, it, it definitely seems from your book that you're a fan of driving and automobiles, but I'm curious, um, can you also kind of put yourself or understand the other side, specifically people who um, don't like how cars and automobiles have shaped our suburban landscapes. Uh, many suburbs uh, have no bike lanes and some have no sidewalks. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, because um, it, it seems like uh, our architecture and suburban landscapes have, have been shaped around everyone sitting in a car. Yeah, I have a chapter about that titled Cars and the Common Good. So, American cities were really built around the automobile, and uh, that was very much a function of the sort of public investment to make that happen a hundred years ago when when cars first came on the scene. We put all our chips on the automobile rather than public transportation, as in um, you know most European cities and really all over the world. And the result is, yeah, the sprawl. Um, I think a 
mostly unanticipated result. Now, you know, these are the cities we have, and it's very difficult to, to sort of, we're not going to tear them down to uh, build public transportation infrastructure. Um, you know, New York City is one of the, the real uh, exceptions. It has an outstanding subway system. But of course, now it's crumbling from lack of investment. And part of that problem is the advent of ride hailing uh, firms. So the, the transportation manager of New York City wrote that between 2013 and 2017, the number of unoccupied vehicles on the streets of Manhattan went up by 81%. And he attributes this really entirely to um, Uber and Lyft. So the business model is to flood the streets with empty cars. That's how you, you know it can be how you can get a car in just two or three minutes. And then the other part of the plan was um, to massively subsidize the fares uh, by by investors, which is why it's so cheap. But of course, this is not sustainable. And um, and in fact, you know, public support for public transportation has been eroded by this really uh, screwed up kind of distortion of, of the market for, um, for taxi service. Um, and it's interesting too, if you think about as well, that the, um, <laughs> if you look at business journalism about Uber and Lyft, they're basically losing money on every ride because they're subsidizing it for market share, meaning that they're getting people used to this, um, uh, to, to these rates and eventually um, reality in terms of uh, finances are, are going to catch up with them. And suddenly like overnight, you're going to see rates for those skyrocket. So it'll be interesting to see how, people adapt when that happens. Yeah, they've been losing billions and billions of dollars every year, um, never made a penny. So uh, a transportation economics consultant finally dug deep into the economics of all this and discovered that Uber and Lyft, they have not discovered new efficiencies that somehow eluded the taxi industry before. Um so the game seems to be um, to just achieve maximum growth. Um, and the thinking was that it's explosive growth is the one thing that venture capital looks for when they're trying to decide what to invest in. So this is the way they value, put a valuation on startups. So um, it starts to look like a bit of a a Ponzi scheme with later investors continuing to subsidize the fares. But um, it seemed like a, um, an instance of, of the founders wanting to achieve this explosive growth in order to have a big um, payday, which indeed they have. Right. Um, well, not just driving, but backyard mechanics and working on cars is also an integral American pastime. However, as cars become more and more computerized, it's sometimes hard for people to work on their own cars that they've paid for. And there's even been legislation in some states about right to repair. Yeah. What do you think about this issue? Well, yeah, you lift the hood on some cars now. And what you see is essentially another hood under the hood. 
as though the sight of an alternator might offend us somehow. And in some cars, there isn't even a dipstick to check your own oil. So, yeah, there's this right to repair, which seems really important. I mean, do you own the car or don't you? Um, because if, you're, if you can't get access to the diagnostic trouble codes, which is really the issue, it's... Uh, you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Some of the car manufacturers are claiming intellectual property rights over the diagnostic software. Um, then it's more like a, a lease or something. You're just kind of borrowing the car, which is not how we think about it when you're paying, you know, a huge chunk of money to, to buy the thing. But, uh, yeah, as far as the sort of computerization of cars, it's a mixed thing. It, yes, it is daunting and it means you have to get into a whole nother realm of expertise in order to fix them or, you know, monkey with them, modify them. But in fact, also, I would call this the second golden age of hot rodding, because at some point, gearheads learned how to code, and now um, people are getting crazy horsepower out of, uh, out of engines by turning all that software to illicit purposes. Um, so it's a really thriving scene, and so I, I call, I sort of coined the term uh, to describe this folk engineering. So you have this widely dispersed efforts of innovation, just like you said, people in their garages, um, pushing the state of the art further. Um, you know, some really extraordinary uh, engineering developments that have just happened from, uh, from gearheads. And I think that makes an interesting point about just the fact that innovation has gotten so centralized as the economy has gotten so, uh, you know, wealth has gotten so concentrated in a relatively small number of enormous firms. And at the same time, you know, if you look at the number of patents per year, it has just dropped off a cliff. So we talk a lot about innovation, but this huge concentration of knowledge in enormous corporations is actually horrible for innovation. 
But the, the bright spot I see is, you know, this, this uh, sort of culture of tinkering is, is still, still taking place on, you know, internet forums or where these people convene. And that's great. Yeah, that's great. Well, we discussed electric and driverless cars. <clears throat> and as you mentioned, there's the, a lot of the driver, driverless cars are not really being built because there's a huge consumer demands. I'm curious, what do you think is the future of cars in America? Um, because if you, if you listen to tech companies, they will sell you this vision that in only a few years, driverless cars will take over all the highways. And I'm skeptical. I'm curious about what you think. Yeah, the hype has far outstripped the actual state of the engineering, in part because it's turned out to be a vastly more difficult challenge than they thought to navigate a, a chaotic urban environment. You know, it's one thing to just have like a semi on the interstate, and that's, e that's an easy problem to solve. Uh, it's practically you know, just cruise control plus... Um, but uh, to to negotiate a a, um, a very complex urban environment where there's so many unpredictable things happening, uh, that you basically have to have a rolling supercomputer in every car. And the the perversity of this is that human beings are actually exquisitely good at this. <laughs> so it's really it's trying to solve a non problem. Now, of course, the point is to basically take over the automotive industry and turn the car into another device. That is, um, the driverless car will certainly be uh, one prong in this growing apparatus of surveillance capitalism, where all your movements through the world will be fed into you know, this behavioral kind of modeling. So... <laughs> You know, it, the further you go into it, the more it looks like uh, just a an audacious effort to um, sort of colonize one more sort of realm of intelligent human action by removing the human element. Um, yeah. And so, then, but, so then the machine will take over and won't let you drive to a protest or to the voting booth. Well, the thing is, <laughs> he, he, well, yeah, human drivers and, and robot cars will not be able to share the road together. That's one thing that has emerged with increasing uh, force and clarity in the it's called human factors research. So it's really an all or nothing thing. Um uh, there's an all colonizing character to this project. Um, so driving your own cars would likely become um, illegal or maybe the insurance calculations would be prohibitive um, or scarce road surface will be, you know, uh, allocated with preference given to, you know, a cartel of, of tech firms. In any case, it may be that we don't have to worry about any of this just because, all of the hype, again, has been overblown. And part of the, the whole strategy of selling this to the public has been the assertion of that it's inevitable, right? This is a way right. of uh, kind of demoralizing any kind of opposition and also, you know, kind of signaling to journalists, oh, you don't need to really look into this and signaling to regulators, oh, it's coming anyway. Don't worry too much about it. 
But um, I think, yeah. But but to your point, I, I think that we could see uh, long haul trucking um, be taken over by driverless yeah. technology. Yeah, and there, there's a, a different worry. Um, I think it's in two thirds of the states in the United States where the number one job for men without a college degree is driving of some sort, whether it's trucking or, you know, delivery. So if that really were to come to fruition, you're talking about a massive um, uh, disruption of of the labor market for, you know, the less less educated part of the, the population, which, you know, we're already dealing with that as a, a really significant political issue. So <laughs> that doesn't look too good. Sure. And, and Andrew Yang mentioned that a couple of times, specifically about long haul trucking and people kind of made fun of him, but he, he was talking about it, not um, from the technology perspective, but what you just mentioned that if this were to, to happen, that it would be massive economic impact. Um, on this segment of, of the workforce. Yeah. And so then, then the, this, you know, the remedy that's offered is a guarantee, what is it called? A universal basic income, which is right. basically just giving people an allowance. Um, so it, this starts to look like a, a new form of feudalism where people are just kind of dependent, um, you know, just give them an allowance, let them sit on the couch and play video games or something. I mean, that, that's pretty demoralizing view of of how one sort of makes one's way through the world by um you know just getting a a government check as opposed to you know the kind of self-reliance and the whole kind of moral psychology of work which is crucial to i think the democratic personality a sense of self-reliance and all that Sure. Well, well. Earlier, you 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 briefly mentioned um, GPS technology, and I'm curious what you what you think about that because as as uh, we've become more and more reliant on our phones and devices for GPS, uh, you routinely, literally every four to five months, if not sooner, see these articles about people uh, following their GPS and driving into muddy fields or or down some road that has been, you know, blocked off. And I'm curious what you think about that in terms of people, as opposed to just looking around and, and, and navigating. Um. Yeah. Well, you know, like I rely on GPS just like everyone else. Um, and you, you, you really do kind of turn your brain off. Uh, it's perfectly understandable to me that someone would end up, driving into a lake as, as has actually happened. Cause you just, you know, you're just following in directions at that point. There's, there's some uh, fascinating cognitive science research about um, the role of finding your own way through the world in the development of higher cognitive capacities in particular in childhood development it's when a child is no longer being passively carried, but um, sort of under their own locomotion, exploring the world, that they begin to develop a mental map of the world. And that's tied into memory. It's tied into um, a lot of other, uh, you know, sort of higher functions. Now, when people rely on GPS, 
you find with brain scans that the part of the brain is called the the, um, hippocampus responsible for spatial reasoning actually atrophies. And uh, conversely, the taxi drivers of London who famously have to memorize the entire city, you know, it's this incredibly complex medieval city with 25,000 streets within a six mile radius of Charing Cross. You look at their brains and the hippocampus is enlarged. So there's something about um, the way we evolved as embodied creatures who find our way through the world that is, it cuts really deep. So if we're going to disburden ourselves of that kind of mental engagement uh, with the world, that's really quite a significant social experiment that we're embarking on. So are you working on another book now? I've got a couple ideas, um, but uh, this one has just come out, man. Give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books? Uh, well, I've got a website. It's simply MatthewBCrawford.com. Uh, B is in boy. Um, you know, no punctuation. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Matthew B. Crawford, author of Why We Drive. The book is available now. So go take a spin and drive to your nearest bookstore and pick up a copy. And Matthew, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road by Matthew B. Crawford, narrated by Ron Butler, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. It is 48 degrees Fahrenheit and sweat is dripping down my back. My goggles are steamed up and it is hard to see. I am on a tract of land owned by the railroad a wooded area in Richmond, Virginia, with discarded beer cans and the occasional homeless encampment commonly referred to as Behind the Martins. Riding a dirt bike on a narrow, meandering trail that is rocky and muddy, with protruding roots and fallen limbs, creek crossings, steep descents, and tight switchbacks, at a mere 15 miles per hour, I might be taxed to the very limit of my mental ability. Picking lines, making imperceptible decisions of throttle, clutch, steering, braking, and body English, revising them on the fly as surprises arrive at my front wheel. All this demands total concentration. When I push the pace beyond my current level of confidence in response to some challenge of the terrain, it is a leap of faith. Or perhaps it is a query. I can't say to what entity this question is addressed. Myself? The obscurities of the trail? A loving providence? It is a position of utter exposure to contingency. Let's see how things go. If it goes well over the following seconds, meaning without mishap, maybe even with a glimmer of some new finesse, this faith redeemed is the sweetest vindication I know of. For a moment, I feel existentially justified. In pursuit of that feeling, I once took four trips to the ER over the course of twelve months. Two broken ribs, a broken heel, what I feared was a separated tendon, it was a muscle strain, and a case of heat exhaustion. To ride a motorcycle off-road is in no way typical of the driving that we do most of the time, and therefore perhaps an odd choice of anecdote to open a book that ranges widely over the driving experience. But the heightened feeling of exposure one has on a dirt bike 
recalls one to a basic truth. We are fragile, embodied beings. There is a certain risk that is inherent in moving around, by whatever means. A responsible person does everything he can to minimize this risk. Yet is risk somehow bound up with humanizing possibilities? In his exquisite essay about walking the hostile streets of Kingston, Jamaica as a boy, and then New Orleans as a young man, Garnett Cadigan writes, When we first learn to walk, the world around us threatens to crash into us. Every step is risky. We train ourselves to walk without crashing by being attentive to our movements and extra attentive to the world around us. As adults, we sometimes walk simply because the street beckons with serendipity. You never know who or what you are going to find when you step out onto an urban sidewalk. A serendipity, a mentor once told me, is a secular way of speaking of grace. It's unearned favor. Seen theologically, then, walking is an act of faith. Walking is, after all, interrupted falling. The heightened contingency of driving off-road resembles walking in the faith it enacts, that of throwing oneself into the world with hope. The ancient Greeks had a single word to express the condition of being without a road, when the way forward is not clear. Aporia. It represents a moment pregnant with the arrival of something unlooked for. These experiences of serendipity and faith feel a bit scarce in contemporary culture, and the language for articulating them seems to be fading from common use. We have a vision of the future in which there would be little scope for such moments. The most authoritative voices in commerce and technology express a determination to eliminate contingency from life as much as possible and replace it with machine-generated certainty. That's what automation does, whatever else it may accomplish. Suddenly it is in the realm of mobility that this vision is being expressed. Suddenly, driving is a topic that cries out for critical, humanistic inquiry. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.